Today we're going to be looking at uh, the first 12 verses of the second chapter of 1 Thessalonians. In this passage, Paul defends his ministry. He defends his integrity, his honesty, and his message. In chapter 1, as you remember, we covered that two weeks ago, Paul had started off by praising the Thessalonians for their strong start in the faith. But in Paul's absence from Thessalonica, apparently some of them had become critical of Paul and the work that he did while he was present with them. And Paul decided to take this opportunity to, to uh, address that criticism. Now, I believe he did that not to justify himself, but I think he did it to strengthen the new believers that were at Thessalonica, and he also did it to help reorient the thinking of those who were wrongly accusing him. Now, Paul's response to criticism is a good one, and it's one that we could follow ourselves. Paul did not strike out with harsh words against anyone. Paul did not engage in character assassination as we see so many doing in our society today. His defense does not focus on one individual, nor does he name names. He does that in other places, but in this case not. What he does is he merely asks the Thessalonians to remember things they know. The word know is a key for 1 Thessalonians, and it appears many times. It appears several times in this passage. So let's begin by reading the first two verses of the second chapter. Am I on? Oh, okay. It just sounded different to me all of a sudden. <clears throat> Thank you. All right. Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel amidst much opposition. Now, indeed, Paul's coming to Thessalonica was not in vain. And in fact, in the first chapter, Paul commended the Thessalonians for receiving the work of faith, the labor of love, and the steadfastness of hope in, G in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's verse 3. In verse 6, he commended them for receiving the word in much affliction, in the joy of the Holy Spirit. In verse 7, he, said he commended them for becoming examples to all believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. And in verse 9, he commended them for turning from idols to serve the living and true God. Indeed, his labors had not been in vain. God had done a mighty work through Paul in what has become the church at Thessalonica. But God had also done a mighty work in Paul himself. God had given the ability to come to Thessalonica and present the gospel there in boldness. You will remember it was on Paul's second missionary journey that he arrived at Troas. Paul had been seeking direction from the Lord as to where to go. 
And he was told by the Holy Spirit that he was not to go into Asia or Bithynia. That's what um, modern-day Turkey, most of it anyway. But it was at Troas that Paul had the vision of the Macedonian man calling, saying, come and help us. And Paul saw this as God's leading, and he immediately sought to go to Greece. So he boarded a ship and landed at Neapolis and then proceeded to Philippi. Now, it was at Philippi that Paul, among other things, cast out the spirit of divination in a slave girl. Now, when the masters realized that they had lost a real source of revenue, they became angry and they grabbed Paul and Silas. And uh, they dragged them into the town magistrates. They accused them of throwing the city into confusion. They accused them of proclaiming customs, which are not lawful for Romans to see or to accept. Well, the magistrates had them beaten with rods and thrown into jail. But when it became known that they were Roman citizens, they became afraid because this is not the way you treat a Roman citizen at this time in Rome. Finally, the magistrates came to Paul and Silas. They apologized to them, but they did ask them to leave, which Paul and Silas both did. And the next stop was then Thessalonica. Now, the events that occurred at Philippi might have caused you to pause and ask, is this really God's direction for my life? This doesn't seem to be going real well, uh, but Paul did not do that. In fact, when he arrived at Thessalonica, he went to the synagogue, and we read in Acts 17, 1 to 4, there was a synagogue of the Jews, and Paul went in, and this was his custom, and on three days he reasoned with them from scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Paul was off to a good start in Thessalonica. But the Jews quickly became jealous. They formed a mob and uh, they came to the house of Jason where Paul and Silas had been staying looking for them. But they didn't find them. So the Jews dragged Jason and some of the brethren before the town magistrates and they accused them of acting against Caesar saying that there is another king. However, after paying a fee, they were released at which time the, the uh, brethren at uh, Paul, at, uh, where are we here? Uh, Thessalonica, uh, excuse me, sent them off to Berea. Pardon me. Now, having suffered so much in Philippi, why was Paul able to be so bold when he arrived at Thessalonica? Well, I think there are many reasons. I focused in on three in my thinking. One of them was that Paul had a clear call from God. He had a clear call from God. He knew what he was to do. Saul was on his way to Damascus. And again, I think we all know that Saul and Paul are the same individual. It just depends on the point in Scripture as to what people referred to him. But Saul was on his way to Damascus to bind believing Jews and carry them back to Jerusalem. And on the way... 
he saw, he saw a great light and he fell to the ground. And a voice said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul answered, who are you, Lord? This is an astounding answer that Paul gives here. He calls the person behind the voice, Lord. That's amazing. Jesus reveals to him that it was he who, who was speaking to him. And so Saul actually acknowledged Jesus as Lord. The Lord is someone who has with power and authority over you. And I think Paul recognized that he had met his Lord at that point. But the light blinded him. And so God decided to send Ananias to Paul to lay his hands on him so that he could see again. Ananias was concerned about that because he knew Paul's reputation. He knew why Paul had come to Damascus. But God tells Ananias this. He says, uh, go, for he's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. There's that clear call to Paul to go to the Gentiles, to kings, to the children of Israel. And then he says, but he must suffer much for my name's sake. I don't know how much of that uh, Ananias communicated to Paul, but that's exactly what Paul is living at this time. He is suffering for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ. But he did that because he had that clear call. He had that clear commissioning by the Lord to go and to spread the word. Secondly, Paul had an unquestioning obedience to God's direction. After seeing the vision at Troas, he immediately got on the boat. He headed for Macedonia. He had no uh, time or, or, or uh, reason to, to uh, sit and debate with himself whether or not he should go. I'm going to go. God said, so I'm going to go. He, was he had complete confidence in God's direction. Thirdly, I think he had that boldness in Thessalonica because his present actions were not directed or dictated by past circumstances. Having escaped Philippi, like I said earlier, it would be easy to begin to question yourself whether you were in the right place and then you begin to have opposition in Thessalonica as well. But that was not Paul. He went and did as he always did, went to the synagogues and began to preach Christ. Now, Thessalonica was a place of great need to whom God had sent him. And that's why he was able to go there in great boldness. Paul would not let anything hinder him from answering God's call on his life. In Philippians 3, verses 13 and 14, he says, No, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it, but I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. Paul was squarely focused on the present thing that God had from him. 
He was not going to let circumstances deter him from doing that. We should do the same. Paul earnestly sought God for direction as to where he was to go. We should do the same. Paul immediately responded once God's call was made clear to him. We should do the same. When the task was difficult, Paul pressed on. We should do the same. If we do that, then we too can walk boldly in a manner that is pleasing to God. Well, with that setting, let's return to the text at hand today. Apparently, there had been some criticism and word had gotten back to Paul of it, and so he decided to address it. But Paul's defense was very simple. He simply asked the Thessalonians to remember what it is they knew about the way Paul conducted himself while in Thessalonica and what he said while in Thessalonica. So let's look at verse 3 of chapter 2 um, again <clears throat> and read. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. Now, an appeal is a serious and urgent request that is made of someone and it demands a response. The appeal that Paul was making to the Thessalonians was that he was calling them to faith in Christ. And in so doing, he said that when I did that, I did not come in error. I did not come in error. Paul was well qualified to bring God's message. Growing up, he was taught by the very best of the Israelite uh, teachers. So he knew the scriptures. But when he came to faith in Christ, he said, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. In verse 11 and 12 of that same chapter of Galatians, he says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. That revelation probably took place while Paul was in Arabia. He was gone there for a period of, of time. And uh, Paul was faithful to that revelation in his preaching and his teaching. Paul's message was authentic and it was true. No, he did not come in error. He did not come and make that appeal in impurity. The word used for impurity here is the word that gives a sense of impure motives. And the most common usage of that word was impure sexual motives. Paul used that term confidently because he knew in his heart that's not how he had come to Thessalonica. And his actions confirmed it while he was there. Thirdly, he says the appeal was not made to deceive. To deceive someone is to 
cause them to, to believe something that is not true. And it's usually done with the motive of trying to get some sort of power or control over that person. That's not how Paul acted at all while he was in Thessalonica. So he did not come in error. He did not come in impurity. He did not come in deceit. But in verse 4 he says, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our heart. Paul here reminds him that he was approved by God at his conversion to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, among others. At Troas, he was specifically commissioned to go to Europe. Paul was right where he needed to be, and he was focused on the mission God had given him, and he was going to complete it. He remained faithful to what God had revealed him in terms of the message he was to preach. He was working for God with the realization that it is God who is going to test him and to whom he is going to give an account. Verse 5, he says, For we never came to you in words of flattery, as you know, nor with pretext for greed. God is witness. Paul continues to draw them to what they know. And he's confident that if he look at him while he was there, that they would agree with him that he didn't come in flattery or in greed. Now, flattery is uh, excessive and insincere praise given to further one's own interest. It's totally a selfish means of coming. Paul did not do that. It was not a method he used, and they knew it. The same is true for the uh, accusation that he came in greed. If you'll drop to verse 9 in that same chapter, in verse 9, Paul states, We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. Paul's missionary journey was paid by himself in the work that he did as a tent maker. No, he did not come in greed. Verse 6, he said, uh, Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or others, though we could have made demands as apostles. Glory means to evoke a good opinion of someone. Paul did not come for personal praise or honor. He came to speak the words of God. He came to speak the gospel to them. Nor did he come to benefit financially. In 1 Corinthians 9.14, it says, In the same way the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living from the gospel. As an apostle, he could have made demands for financial support. Paul chose not to. As an apostle, he might have exerted his authority and placed himself at the head of a church or a group of churches. He chose not to. He did not use his apostolic credentials as a means of getting anything from the people to whom he was preaching the gospel. His goal was to serve and to give of himself in behalf of others, and they knew it. Now, 
contrast Paul to the orators and the philosophers who passed through the Roman, king, uh, the Roman Empire at that time, they were not like Paul at all. They came to entertain. They came to collect money. They, became, they came to become famous. That was not Paul's goal. Paul had that single-mindedness of presenting the gospel. He continues in verse 7. He says, But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Paul said that when he came, he didn't come with any deceit or anything like that. He came in the gentleness like a mother and treated them like a mother treats a newborn baby. A newborn baby has no ability to support life by him or herself. That newborn baby depends fully on the mother for it to survive. All the needs of an infant must be met by the mother. The Thess Thessalonians were not rich. And so Paul determined to add no financial burden to them. And so therefore he paid his own way. His total was, focus was to see the believers at Thessalonica grow in the faith that they already had. He wanted them to thrive as new believers. So like a nursing mother, he made all the sacrifices that was necessary to see that take place. Paul had great affection for the Thessalonians, so he was well shared, uh, well uh, pleased not only to share the gospel, but also to share himself with them. Verse 10, he says, You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct before you. Now, earlier, Paul had uh, invoked God as his witness that what he was saying is true. He does that in this verse also. But he also adds the Thessalonians themselves. He says, you're now going to be my witnesses to my holy, righteous, and blameless conduct. Bill McDonald states of this word, this verse rather, God was also a witness that he was devout or holy, just or righteous, and blameless. Holy, that is, separated to God from sin. Righteous in character and conduct. Blameless toward God and man. Paul was careful to fulfill his duties that God had given him. He had no qualms to lay his life out before the Thessalonians and let them inspect it. He was confident in his character. Verse 11, For you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each of you just as the Father does in dealing with his own children, guiding you to live lives of honor, moral courage, and personal integrity, worthy of the God who saves you and calls you into his kingdom and glory. We have no worth of our own. We cannot earn God's favor by what we do. 
but we can live lives that are worthy of the God who saves us by living lives of honor. That is, living lives that demonstrate what is right. We can live lives of moral courage, have the capacity to overcome fear and stand up for our core values and beliefs. We can live lives of personal integrity, have and follow strong morals and values in word and deed. These actions come from a boldness that we have in God. Paul was committed to see the Thessalonians continue their good start in the faith. So he was encouraging these believers to lead holy lives and to continue in spite of persecution. Jim Elliott says, in spiritual work, if nowhere else, the character of the worker decides the quality of his work. Shelley and Byron may have been moral freelancers and still write good poetry. Wagner may be lecherous and still produce fine music, but it cannot be so in any work for God. Paul could refer to his own character and manner of living for proof of what he was saying to the Thessalonians. Nine times over in this first epistle, he says, you know, referring to the Thessalonians' firsthand observation of Paul's private as well as, as public life. Paul went to Thessalonica and lived a life that more than illustrated what he preached. It went beyond illustration to convincing what a testimony to Paul's conduct. Throughout the years, there have been many other believers who have led lives that demonstrated their faith to the world around them. In recent years, Billy Graham comes to my mind. He's perhaps the most successful evangelist in our time. And his success, I believe, was due to the principles that guided his actions. In 1948, he and his staff pledged to avoid being alone with women other than their wives. This was done in order to not give any appearance of impropriety or impurity. In 1950, leaving the crusade in Atlanta, the local paper published two pictures relating to the crusade. One was a very nice one showing Billy Graham smiling and waving as he was leaving Atlanta. The other one was a picture of the ushers at the crusade carrying bags of money away from the evening's service, the money that was given as a love offering. The pictures was, were published to put a shadow on the financial integrity and transparency of the Graham um, uh, Association, and it deeply disturbed him. So the result, to maintain that financial transparency and integrity, Graham agreed to live on a modest salary that he would draw from the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association and not accept love offerings. In fact, from all of the crusades that occurred from that point on, 
All finances were handled by the local committee that put on the crusade and not by Billy Graham officials. When he died, uh, Yonat Shimron, who I don't know, but writes this. He says, Graham was a zealous advocate for full financial disclosure. In 1979, he was among the founders of the Evangelical Council for Financial Accountability. No further questioning of the financial appropriateness of the Billy Graham Association took place after that time because he had purposed to do what looked right in the eyes of people, and he did what was right in the eyes of people. Thirdly, he focused his preaching on the Bible. He made the decision right up front early that he was going to present the truth of the Bible with no apology. If you have ever seen a Billy Graham crusade, you would have seen him holding up the Bible saying, the Bible says, and then he would quote the word of Scripture directly. He had a high view of Scripture, and he honored the Bible in his preaching. And then fourthly, his crusades were bathed in prayer prior to the uh, crusade and also during the crusade. These pillars of conduct served him well. And if you think about those pillars of conduct, those were the questions that Paul was having to ask, or he was having to correct by those who were critical of him in Thessalonians. Now, Paul had a simple defense. He says, remember who I am. Remember what I did while I was with you. You know, that sounds simple. But in order to be able to do that, Paul first had to live the life and walk in a manner that was worthy of God. Without that walk, while he was at Thessalonica, he had no defense. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now there's a bold statement. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. But again, that can only be made if the life that you live back it up. How about us? Can we say that? Can you say, be imitators of me as I am of Christ? If not, then we need to strive to become people who do live in that manner. There should be no difference in what we do and what we say. And there wasn't in Paul's life. You know, therein lies the challenge for us, and that's the message that I want us to leave with today. Let us determine that as others look, on our lives, they see lives striving to please God and not men. They see lives that are imitating Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this look into the life of Paul. And thank you, Father, for the honesty with which he shares the criticism that was leveled at him. Thank you, Father, that he had a life that refuted all of those. Father, I pray for us. 
I pray, Father, that we would take a good look at our lives and that we would examine them. And, Father, that if we need to make some changes, that we would do so. And, Father, may it always be our goal to represent you well day in and day out. Father, we thank you for the help that you're going to give us in that. And so, Father, we pray that now that you'll dismiss us with your blessing. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.